The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. This evening I'd like to um, finish with a series of talks that I've been giving over, I don't know, the last few months when I've been here. I've been talking about uh, a list, a, a list of qualities that support our practice and they both support our practice they are cultivated as we practice they strengthen as we practice and it's also helpful to actually incline towards these qualities in our practice and this list is called the list of the ten paramis and uh, I just noticed a week or so ago that that we have a bookmark that we send out in our year-end fundraising letter and that bookmark has the ten paramis on it. So if you didn't get one of those and you want to you know, keep this list at hand, um, um, you're welcome to pick one up. I think there's several of them out on the, on the, the Donna box as you, leave the, as you leave the building. I used to, um, at one point, um, before, it was quite a while ago before I went off on a long retreat, I, um, I took the qualities, each one, I put it on a little post-it note, and I stuck them around the house to remind me about these qualities. And I'll just name them right now. They are generosity, virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, loving-kindness, and equanimity. And I just took these little... I put one word on a little sticky, like I put generosity on the door as I was leaving. I put them in places where they might be useful. I put equanimity on the computer. I put uh, wisdom on the refrigerator. <laughs> I, put, <laughs> I put patience on the bathroom mirror <laughs> because I noticed I got impatience in the bathroom. So, you know, just, just kind of reminding myself of these qualities, and that's, the, you know, that can be a kind of a practice around these qualities. And so I've been talking about these qualities for the last, I don't know, five or six weeks or so that I've, in the, the, the times that I've been here. And tonight I'm at the last two, loving kindness and equanimity. So, you know, these lists in the Buddhist world. (laughs) There's a lot of different lists in the Buddhist world, as many of you are are aware. And often these lists are structured in a way such that there's a kind of a developmental um, possibility for starting starting with generosity and then moving on to uh, virtue. And so starting where it's a little bit easier and then moving on to where it's a little more difficult, a little, little harder for things to let go of. And this list is no different. It's kind of structured in this way, and in fact, the term for the, the, um, this list, the paramis, paramis um, means, the translation from the Pali means perfection. And the way this list is dis- described in the classical teachings is that each one, starting from the beginning of the list, and I read them in order, each one is perfected by the one that follows it. And so, for instance, the um, generosity is said to be perfected by virtue. 
And this is because the, um, the cultivation of virtue or the cultivation of behaviors that are non-harming in the world is said to give one of the greatest kinds of gifts. We give the gift of fearlessness to people, that, that they don't have to fear to be in our presence. And that's considered a, a gift. And so it, it, uh, it elevates the quality of generosity a little bit to cultivate the quality of non-harming, to cultivate the quality of, of ethical conduct, of, of the inner landscape of virtue. It, it, uh, it strengthens, it, it strengthens the, the generosity to a new level when virtue is cultivated. And each of the paramis is said to have a, a way in which it perfects the one before it. And so these last two, love and equanimity, can kind of be considered a, the, um, the perfection of all the others. And I like that. I like that this list, I mean, to me, it also just says or implies that these two are really powerful, important qualities for our practice. And I like the fact that it's got love, and balance of mind together at the end of this list. So I'll start and talk a little bit about loving kindness. This is really, the the quality of loving kindness is really the open heart that can meet whatever is happening in the world. Uh, It it can be a a sense of kindness for our own experience or kindness for how others are engaging in the world. A sense of kindness towards other other people and how they're doing things or it can be a sense of kindness towards our own experience how, what's happening in our own experience. And so this quality of the open heart if we can kind of think about, even just imagine what it might be like for the heart to be soft and open and receptive. You know, it's got a quality of wishing well for others. It's got a quality of non-resistance to what's happening. It's a heart that resonates with the world. And that heart that resonates with the world, the, this, this quality of the open heart, it takes different flavors depending on what it's meeting, depending on what's happening in the world. And so when that open heart, that soft heart, is in the presence of something difficult or a struggle, either our own struggle or the struggle of another person, that quality of the open heart kind of shifts to be felt as compassion. And when the, uh, that open heart is meeting or in the, uh, the presence of someone, someone's joy or someone's um, success or something beautiful happening in the world, that open heart resonates in kind with what we call sympathetic or empathetic joy. Very beautiful 
very beautiful quality to the heart that doesn't um, begrudge someone else's happiness. It's actually, this quality, it, it's, it's, it's really um, helpful to recognize that the quality of love has all three of these together. Compassion, love, and sympathetic or empathetic joy. Because there can be times when it's easier to feel certain aspects of love than other aspects. Certainly for myself, I could feel a sense of connection with friends and wishing my friends to, um, to be happy. But sometimes when they had something really good happen to them and I was struggling, it was not so easy sometimes to feel happiness for their happiness. And sometimes too when something challenging is happening, we can feel our heart contrict, constrict or contract. It's like, oh, that's just too hard to be with right now. And so the, the, the open heart, knowing that the open heart contains all three of these, can be kind of a guide for us to learn and understand where is our love not quite perfected, not quite deep, deepened. And it makes a lot of sense to me that equanimity follows love, that equanimity or non-reactivity, balance of mind, is the quality that allows love to be perfected because it is that balance of mind that allows us to not constrict around someone's suffering or not resent someone's happiness. And so the, the, we, can, we, we begin to explore this quality of the open heart. And so as a parami, as a quality in our practice, we can, um, you know, being in this list, it's, uh, it's an indication that it's useful both to notice it if it's, if it's present, available, if, if and when we do experience the sense of the open heart, to recognize it, get familiar with it. This is an important um, thing with all of these qualities of paramis. When we start to see it, when we start to recognize, oh, this is what it like, feels like for the heart not to be constricted, even in small ways, even in momentary ways. When we recognize that, it, it helps us to recognize it more. It's like the very recognition of it allows it to flourish. In a way, mindfulness functions that way. That when, when we... Uh, and it's not necessarily so obvious at times because a lot of our work in our mindfulness practice is to turn towards what's difficult, to turn towards um, our challenging, reactive emotions. And what we start to see is that as we bring our mindfulness to anger and confusion and fear and irritation. And we, we start to see that mindfulness gives us some space around it and allows it to kind of soften, begin to release, begin to let go. And so it seems as though mindfulness supports things disappearing when we see them. 
And yet when we turn our mindful attention to beautiful qualities such as any of these paramis, patience or generosity or love, if we notice those qualities, mindfulness, when we notice these wholesome qualities, rather than creating the conditions for them to disappear, creates the conditions for them to get stronger. It's as if mindfulness is a, a warm bath that, uh, that these warm qualities kind of flourish in. And it's a bright light that the reactive qualities kind of cannot stand up to. So mindfulness has both. It's, it's kind of like a magic quality that way. And so when we turn our mindful attention to a quality like love, it does strengthen it. It strengthens the possibility for us to experience it. And so we can cultivate love. The, um, there's some formal ways to do that practice of loving-kindness. Many of you may have heard of this practice. It's a, it's a formal practice where we actually use thoughts to incline our minds towards wishing other people well. We bring people into our minds and like bring, bring a friend into the mind and make the wish. May you be happy. May you be well. May you be safe. May you live your life with ease. Bringing... Um, somebody we don't know very well into our minds and making that same wish. And so there's this kind of formal way of actively cultivating the quality using basically inclining the mind to think thoughts of goodwill. That I, I, I could give a whole four-week class on that. Maybe I'll do that when I come back. Um, but... Um, For now, I'll just mention that it's possible that there are practices that can encourage the cultivation of metta, of this quality of loving-kindness. The Pali is metta. In our daily lives, in our lives in the world, we can also cultivate this quality of connection, of goodwill, just in in going about our day. We can, for instance, notice, um, notice the causes and conditions in our lives that tend to support our heart being open. I notice for myself, if I don't get a lot of sleep and if I'm hungry, my heart is not as resilient and not as willing to give so noticing these conditions can be, it can be helpful to, like for instance, if you're going to be going somewhere where you know there may be a, a challenge and wanting to bring as much open-heartedness as you can, get there, get there in as much time as you can so that you're not rushed, make sure that you have a full stomach. I mean, just find ways. If you know that there are ways that your heart, is, it's harder for your heart to be open, Cultivate the conditions that at least support the possibility. And, you know, if another, another practice or another thing I've, I've enjoyed doing in my, in, my, um, in my practice is to act on thoughts of kindness when they arise. 
you know, just if you're in the grocery store and you see somebody uh, who looks a little rushed, you know, and you're, you know, you're, you're in line, but they're coming up and they're looking a little rushed, they're looking for another lane that's not so crowded. You know, if it occurs to you, oh gosh, I could let them in, you know, that thought is there, that thought of kindness to, you know, offer them that gesture of goodwill is there. But often what I see happens, at least in my own mind, is another thought will come in and say, oh, but I really have that other thing I need to do, so, you know, I'm just going to stay here. It's like, you know, our, our, our habit of the closed heart kind of comes in and overrides that that impulse. And so, you know, if you see that impulse towards kindness, act on it. Just play with acting on it when, when that happens. And then I also have found it fun to practice simple acts of kindness. You know, to, to take up an exercise, for instance, um, for, uh, you know, letting people have an easy merge on the freeway or um, even just smiling. Even just a smile is, a, is an act of kindness. And um, I did this practice at one point. It was a real, um, it was a part of my, uh, my day during a period of time where I was taking a lot of walks in my neighborhood. And I decided that I would just see, if people were willing to make eye contact, I would smile at them. And uh, boy, you know, it was amazing how much I got back from that smile. It's like I got a, a smile in return and because I was so, I was present for it, it's like seeing somebody smile just sent these waves of happiness through me. So it paid itself back so many times over. <laughs> so just, you know, finding little ways to, to cultivate, to, to remind yourself to be kind. And if there are situations where you know you're headed into a, a tension, a, a time of tension. Like last night I had a, um, uh, a homeowners association meeting. I'm the president of my homeowners association, and these meetings can get a little bit contentious at times. And, and so I just reminded myself, you know, kindness is my most important thing here. Just as I, as I left my, my, my house, I just reminded myself, kindness, I want to remember kindness, not to not to get caught up in the in the contentiousness of it. They're just finding ways to practice simple acts of kindness. And then with all of these qualities, all of these paramis, we can use mindfulness. Mindfulness of when it appears, as I just talked about a few minutes ago. Mindfulness of that, of the, of the arising of kindness when it happens, cultivates it. The other side of the equation that does cultivate mindfulness, but in a more indirect way, is noticing when you're not feeling kind. Not to try to change it, or get rid of it, or feel like you're you know, doing it wrong or anything, but just the simple recognition, oh, my heart feels con- constricted right now. That paradoxically creates the... Uh, Conditions for transformation, for the heart to not be quite so constricted. It's, it's so paradoxical the way, the way our practice works. We can cultivate love by being mindful when we don't feel loving. That is actually 
a strategy that we can use to encourage ourselves to feel more kind. And in a way, what we're doing right there, in that moment, a feeling of kind of, of, of um, maybe anger or confusion or irritation is happening, and we turn our attention to that with mindfulness, allowing it, that very allowing carries the seeds of kindness to our own experience in it. And so just that movement of, oh, can I make space for this feeling of anger? Can I make space for this feeling of contractedness? Brings in the quality of friendliness to ourselves, which supports the quality of friendliness The other thing that's very interesting, at least I found it kind of a really um, delightful and surprising experience, is that love is actually cultivated. It's revealed almost as we deepen in our practice, as we explore with mindfulness all of the reactivity, all of the confusion, as we turn our attention in the way I just described, open to our frustration, open to our irritation. Not only are we bringing kindness to the experience by turning our attention to it, but very often, at least in my own experience, what I've seen is that kind of underneath that whole structure of whatever that reactivity is, that anger or that frustration or that fear, underneath that whole pattern of reactivity, often in the middle of that lies some deeper wish for your own happiness or for the happiness of others. And so, you know, it's, it's like embedded in the middle of that reactivity can be a kernel of love. I'll give an example. Um, one of the clearest times I experienced this was when there was an experience, I had a strong experience of fear happening. I don't think I have time to describe the whole situation, so I'll leave the, the complexity of the example aside. It was, a ti- it was a time where I just, I was in a situation that was quite productive of fear. And um, it was uh, uh, a situation outside of my control. I didn't have any control over it. And um, I was just noticing the fear just noticing being with that fear. And I, I began to realize that um, it, seemed, it, it did seem to be helpful to bring in some of the meta-reflections. May all beings be happy. May all beings be safe. In fact, that was the wish I had, I had in my mind. The, the fear was not just about my own safety, but the safety of everyone where I was, where I was near. And so the, the, it was kind of a, a wish arose, you know, the wish, may all beings, yes, may all beings be safe. And as I, as I connected to that wish, it was like, yes, that is what I wish. 
That is what I wish. I wish that all beings may be safe. And when, as I was doing that, as I was connecting with that deeper wish, the fear was not there. But then there were times where I would lose touch with that wish, that deep wish, and the, all the reactivity would come back. It's like, it's not possible to be safe. We're not going to be safe. It's, 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 this is a dangerous situation, you know. And so the mind was reactive in this way, and it lost touch with that that deeper wish, or it, it kind of, it, it created demands on that wish that it be possible is really what it was doing. So the, the deep wish for safety was there, and the fear was like it was a reaction to thinking that it wasn't possible for that wish to be true. And in some way, the mind, I think some of our reactivity some of our reactive experience is like a, a, um, a seeing of that deeper wish for, for connection, for love, for happiness, for safety, and feeling like, but the conditions aren't, it's not possible, so I'm not supposed to have that wish. And we like, you know, squash that wish or pretend like it's not there or somehow try to deny that wish. And so our, our challenge, one of our challenges with this practice is to open to that wish fully and also open fully to the truth that it may not be possible to live that wish in this moment. And so this is where our deep wishes, Our deep wish for well-being, for happiness, it's in us. It's in all of us, this deep wish for happiness, well-being. It's very natural. And yet we've, we've squashed so much of it and repressed so much of it because the conditions of the world make it uh, appear like we shouldn't have those wishes. And so metta the quality of love is really deeply connecting to those wishes, those very wholesome wishes for safety, for happiness, for well-being. Not denying their beauty, the beauty of those wishes. And also not denying the reality of impermanent, unreliable, out-of-control that reality is impermanent, unreliable, out of control. It's like our mind, as our practice deepens, our mind starts to be able to hold both of these things at the same time. And this, I think, is really what these two paramis are about. You know, really connecting to that deep wish, that deep inner wish for happiness, for safety, and deeply understanding with balance of mind that reality is impermanent, unreliable, out of control. And when both of those can be fully open to, there's a, a different way we live in the world, I think. We go through the world without so much hostility and confusion and without so much holding on and grasping on to things, trying to keep things the way they are because... We like it for this instant. And so over and over again, I've seen this kind of amazing thing that when I'm willing to open to my reactivity, 
really open to it. It points the way to, it's like, it's like, it's got threads to both of these truths, to the truth of the deep core wishes that we have and to the truths of unreliable, impermanent, out of control. And so our very reactivity is the, the gateway or the doorway to opening to, the, to both sides, to the love and to the equanimity. I used to think when I saw something like self-hatred in my mind that I just needed to, you know, cut the whole thing out, that it was wholly bad. That it was, a, the whole thing was a problem and that if I could just like take a scalpel and, you know, go excise it and throw it away, that that would be what, what was necessary. But over and over I've seen that even inside the middle of self-hatred is some wish for love, the wish to be seen, the wish to be, but the wish to belong, the wish to be connected. And if we're approaching our reactivity from the perspective of need to get rid of it, you know, it's not going to go quietly because it does have these wholesome wishes in the middle. And so, just the practice of mindfulness begins to reveal, you know, as we let go of the ways that we're constricted and caught, it begins to reveal these deep wishes and the beauty of those wishes. I'm going to move on to equanimity now. see what I can say about equanimity in a few minutes. <laughs> the first thing I'd like to say is, is a quote from um, a German monastic. His name is Nyanaponika. His monastic name is Nyanaponika. And he wrote that equanimity rooted in insight is the guiding and restraining power for love, compassion, and sympathetic joy. It points out to them the direction they have to take and sees to it that this direction is followed. Equanimity guards love and compassion from being dissipated in vain quests and from going astray in the labyrinths of uncontrolled emotion. Equanimity, being a vigilant self-control for the sake of freedom, does not allow sympathetic joy to rest content with humble results, forgetting the real aims we have to strive for. So this is the way in which you know, equanimity really perfects this quality of love. So the word equanimity, you know, before I started coming to Dharma talks, equanimity was not a word I used much in my daily life. Maybe it's because I didn't have much of it, but I also think it's because it's not a word that's much used in our culture. So you know, it's, it, it basically describes a state of mind of balance. There's another word that's translated as... The, the word that's translated as equanimity here is upeka. There's another word that's also translated in it as equanimity that means standing balanced in the middle of things. And that's a good way to describe what this quality of equanimity is. Balance. Non-reactivity to all of the 
joys and sorrows of life. Impartiality, not taking sides, or acceptance, allowing. All of these words are kind of in the terrain, they're in the flavor of what the quality of equanimity is. It's not indifference or apathy. It's not a disconnection. It's not a remove. Sometimes we think that what this word equanimity or balance implies is being disconnected. And that, I think, that, that, that idea comes because it's so hard to imagine being fully connected with all the suffering and all the joy in the world. But that's exactly what equanimity allows. It allows that connectivity and a rootedness so that we're not like buffeted around or knocked out of balance from everything that's happening in the world. When equanimity is present, it allows us to be more fully present for whatever is happening. And equanimity is also not necessarily associated with non-action. That's another way that we tend to think about the word equanimity. If we're non-reactive, we think, well, why would we do anything? And again, that comes from, I think, the, the, the habitual way that we act in the world, which is from reaction. It's from, oh, I don't like that, I need to get rid of it, I need to control it or fix it or change it. Or I like that, I want more of it, let me, let me get it, let me have it. So we're kind of, you know, in our normal way of navigating life, we're very much acting out of, think, you know, getting what we want and getting rid of what we don't want. That's a kind of a, a reactive mode. And so we cannot imagine what action would look like if it didn't come from that perspective. And yet, it is also possible for action to arise from love, from compassion, from joy, from generosity, from wisdom. It's possible for action to arise from wholesome qualities. And that, it becomes more of a skillful response than a reaction. So we're not reacting from aversion, we're not reacting from greed. We are open to the situation as it is and we see this action is called for from compassion, from kindness. And so, you know, these, uh, these qualities of love, these, the three flavors of love, of compassion, of, of kindness and joy, they kind of, in a way, define the emotional map or the the terrain of the heart that is free or the heart that's open. That's another thing we sometimes think about equanimity. It means we're emotionless. But it, it, it really means we feel more deeply through these doors of compassion, love, and joy. So it creates a new reality for our hearts. So cultivating equanimity. I think the most powerful way to cultivate equanimity is 
to be mindful when we are not equanimous, when we are reactive. Being mindful of reactivity is, it takes us step by step towards the deepening of equanimity. If we can, kind of as I was pointing to with turning with um, that quality of allowing and acceptance to whatever's happening in our experience, it brings along the quality of love. Well, it also brings along the quality of balance of mind. It brings along the non-judgmental, non-reactive stance to, to witness our reactive emotions rather than acting on them. And so that's, that's a kind of a turning of our mind. Again, we, we might have the idea or the thought that if a reactive emotion is arising, if, if I'm feeling anger, that's bad. Or if I'm feeling anger, it means I'm cultivating anger, so I shouldn't feel anger. It's the feeling anger and acting on it that strengthens anger. When we can feel anger through this uh, container of non-judgmental awareness, it creates the conditions for an understanding to begin to arise, wisdom to begin to uh, arise around that anger. We begin to understand how it's put together. We begin to see what the parts of it are. Mindfulness begins to, to point out to us that actually this anger that you think is going to make somebody else so miserable is actually making you miserable right now. That was like one of my first insights into anger when I started being mindful. It's like I realized, whoa, I thought this was making somebody else miserable, but it's actually making me miserable. So we see that. That's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of understanding. So the quality of acceptance is really, uh, that's often a word that's used with, with around equanimity. And the word acceptance can sometimes be problematic too. We think, you know, we bring associations with words a lot. And I think an association that comes with the word acceptance is... But somehow we think in order to accept something, we have to approve of it or we have to like it. I'm going to read a quote from um, a Zen teacher who talked about acceptance. And it's just so beautiful. This was one of the most beautiful ways of framing this quality. This um, Zen teacher, his name is Daishan Morgan, and the book that I'm reading from is called Buddha Recognizes Buddha. It's not an easy book to find, but it's beautiful. It's a beautiful book. He's, he's a beautiful writer. To accept means to receive what is offered. The circumstances of life give rise to conditions, and our acceptance of those conditions is just the acceptance of things as they are. What is not meant in the Buddhist idea of acceptance is any agreement or disagreement with the way things are. Acceptance is about basing ourselves in reality and not about making judgments of liking or dislike. 
To accept the situation is to be grounded in the actual state of things without getting lost in ideals or fantasies of how we would like things to be. We then have a good basis from which to see what action may be called for. Acceptance does not imply inertia. On the contrary, to be grounded in reality gives rise to a true response. So this is the quality of equanimity. This quality of acceptance of what is, what is it right now? And that is truly what equanimity is about. When we turn with mindfulness to what's happening now, what's already happening now, it's already here, whatever it is, whether it's anger or confusion or fear or judgment or hostility or irritation or, or depression or boredom, it's already here. It can't be any other way in this moment. It's already here. That's what acceptance means, accepting that it is here. And when we accept that it is here in this moment, the landscape changes dramatically. This reminds me of the, the Heisenberg principle. I think it's the Heisenberg principle the principle in physics that you cannot observe something without changing what is observed. And that's what happens with mindfulness. It changes the landscape. There's anger there, perhaps, or depression or boredom, and there's mindfulness there. And it starts to shift the landscape. And the, the, the truly opening to that this is how it is right now, does exactly what this, this, readers, this writer says. Acceptance does not imply inertia. On the contrary, to be grounded in reality gives rise to a true, true response. So this is, this is equanimity. It is grounded in reality. It is meeting what is true. It is alignment with truth. And that alignment allows us to step forward into the next moment with hopefully a skillful response, with a more skillful response. I think I'll stop and leave a little bit of time for questions, but I'll close with um, just a few thoughts. One is that, you know, again, equanimity might seem like a dull or boring place, but actually it creates the landscape for a very rich life. I remember the first time I felt mudita, sympathetic joy for a friend. What what an amazing feeling to just really wish her well. And I remember the first time I really felt for myself compassion for suffering. Also quite an amazing experience to recognize this is suffering and the heart breaks over that suffering but not fights, it doesn't fight it. I'll close with another um, quote from Nyanaponika. 
Equanimity is a perfect, unshakable balance of mind rooted in insight. And insight here really is this recognition of the truth of what's happening now and that it is impermanent, subject to change, unreliable, and largely out of control. In a moment of seeing that, that is insight. And that insight creates the conditions for letting go of the ways that we hold on, trying to make things to be permanent, reliable, within our control. Or, oh, 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 almost, I, I can't think of an exception. I, I, our reactivity stems from resisting the fact that things are impermanent, unreliable, and out of control. Our reactivity comes from trying to make things permanent, reliable, in control. And so this is insight. When we see it is impermanent, unreliable, out of control, paradoxically, rather than freaking out and going, oh my gosh, it's like there's nothing in control, the mind lets go of trying to make it some other way and enters into a very deep place of peace. And this is the fruition of equanimity, of that insight. Equanimity is a perfect, unshakable balance of mind rooted in insight. But in its perfection and unshakable nature, equanimity is not dull, heartless, and frigid. Its perfection is not due to an emotional emptiness, but to a fullness of understanding to its being complete in itself. Its unshakable nature is not the immovability of a dead cold stone, but the manifestation of the highest strength. And I would add, and love, that equanimity integrates love fully into our hearts. So we have a few minutes if there's any comments or thoughts or questions perspectives. Did you have something? No? Okay. <laughs> so could you talk for a moment about... Yeah, and use the mic. Do use the mic. Could you speak for a moment, please, about equanimity and compassion in the face of real danger to your soul by staying in the process of decision-making? Let's say the stay or go decision-making. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yes. So, it, you know, sometimes compassion... I mean, the equanimity is, is broad... And so if you're in a situation of real danger to yourself, compassion for yourself might well be get yourself out of here. That it would not be, that that, that would not have to come 
from a reactivity. You know, you can kind of think, imagine this in any case. You can imagine it. It probably, the, the situation that I'm about to describe, at least I would feel some reactivity. But I can imagine the possibility of the action coming purely from compassion. And that is if you're watching a child, you know, the, the ch- a child playing, and you see the child start to run out into the road and there's a car coming. You're going to yell at the child. You're going to run out and try to grab the child. I could envision that coming just purely from the wish for well-being for that child as opposed to my reactivity about, you know, anger or fear or confusion. So there is a way in which compassion can promote an action that, that means leave. Get yourself out of here. And the equanimity... Um, the equanimity might come around recognizing. You know, I was in a I, I was in an airplane a few weeks ago, and just for a split second, I don't know what happened, but it was like the plane just like tipped very suddenly, like that. Just for a split second, it like it had my mind kind of freak out. And um, I, I, it was enough time that I thought, this is, a plane, this is going to be a plane crash and I'm going to die. I mean, that it, was, it, was an, it, was, it was strong enough and um, present enough and lasted long enough for me to have that thought. And then it stopped. And I looked around and it's like, whoa, did that actually happen? And I saw, well, the, the stewardess was on the floor. You know, so yes, this <laughs> And, you know, um, so it, it was just, it was very, it was a very strange sensation. And in that moment, you know, compassion would say, get me out of here. And equanimity recognizes it's out of control. Equanimity acknowledges when there is control and when there isn't control. And if there is control, it takes action out of that compassion. If there isn't control, it understands that. It understands that this is not a situation in my control. You know, I didn't have a parachute. I couldn't jump out of the plane or something. You know, it's like, if this plane goes down, I'm going down. You know, I cannot get myself out of here. So, you know, that, that's, that's equanimity understands the out-of-control nature, but also understands that we do have a capacity for action and takes skillful action when it is possible. The other piece around equanimity, if I mean, I can think of other situations, um, um, where there's a, a, another person that's a danger to, uh, to you. And in that kind of situation, there may also need to be some equanimity around the fact that you can't make that person change. We cannot, we cannot choose for other people. And this is, this is one of the ways in which equanimity around other people is expressed that we understand, equanimity understands that other people have to make their own choices and that we cannot control, again, it's about the control piece in a way, we can't control what other people choose to do. And so 
you know, there may, there, if, if, so equanimity understanding that, understanding that person's actions are not in my control. I, there, are, there is some control I have over my own actions, so what can I do out of compassion for myself and possibly even out of compassion for the other person to prevent harm from happening? That's another way to understand the compassion too is, is that if it's somebody else that's uh, creating the danger, if somebody else is um, a danger to you, it's not only compassionate for yourself to get yourself out of there, it's compassionate for the other person because it's not a wholesome thing to harm somebody. And so you can understand that it's also helping the other person for you to, to prevent that harm from happening. And sometimes, you know, sometimes we do have to take... Um, Action. I mean, there's this kind of a famous story. I'll finish the story. It's just a little after nine, but I'll finish the story. Um, Susan Salzberg was in um, India when, when she was younger, and she was practicing in India, and she was in a rickshaw at one point, I believe, and um, somebody uh, tried to grab her out of the rickshaw. And so there was somebody else in the rickshaw, and they, you know, they managed to kind of, you know, get away and, you know, pull themselves away from that person. And um, she uh, went to her teacher and asked him what a skillful thing to do in that situation was where she was being attacked. And he said, did you have your umbrella with you? She said, yeah, I did. He said, well, then with all the loving kindness you have in your heart, you should have hit him with your umbrella. So sometimes it can take forceful action to prevent harm for, for somebody and can it be done from a perspective of love rather than hatred so I should stop thank you for your attention and I'll be back in a few months